Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can have them at the ready. We're going to be looking at certain passages. Um, if you want to take notes today, which I would highly recommend you do, because we're going to talk about something that is probably something you have struggled to talk about significantly with friends, family members, colleagues, coworkers, neighbors. Um, and so we want to talk today because uh, we're in a series on just the toughest issues in the Bible and uh, how do we address those things? How do we help people know what the Bible has to say? Um, we're going to try to answer the question today, why is God so angry and violent in the Bible? Um, this is a subject that turns many, many, many people off. Um, this is a reason why some people don't talk about God. Uh, it's why many don't read the Bible. And when we asked you over the last couple of months to send us your questions about the Bible, what are the, the hardest things that you have to deal with, what are the things you wish we would talk about, this subject came up more than anything else. It's more than anything else. Um, and so that's why we're preaching this series. Um, questions answered, shining light on the Bible's toughest problems. Um, most people have kind of even moved on from this discussion about a God who's angry or a God who is wrathful or vengeful or, um, you know, a God of justice who condemns people um, because most people think that that kind of God is just so old-fashioned. Um, we all know that wrath is an expression of being out of control and a God who's wrathful and vengeful is clearly the invention of ancient savages who were brutal themselves. And so they've just invented a God who's as brutal as they are to justify what they're doing. And we're so much more enlightened than that, aren't we? We know better. Um, God cannot be angry or violent. And so that's what a lot of people think. And that shuts down conversations. When you talk about God's wrath, when you talk about judgment, when you talk about punishment for sin, anything like that, it can turn people off. And so we're going to address that today. And I want to start by, 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 by declaring that, look, when it comes to God's wrath and anger, you have only three choices Okay, there are three choices, and here they are. You can have a God who, one, is always angry, two, who is never angry, or three, who is sometimes angry. Okay, a God who's always angry. This is a God who's always in a rant. He's always upset. He's never satisfied. You, by the way, are never good enough. This is a God who always focuses on the negative. No one wants that. Okay, no one wants that. No Christian wants that. No non-Christian wants that. Um, and so then we go to a God who's never angry. That's number two. Lots of people say that they want this. A lot of people say that they want a God who's never angry. Um, the problem with that is that a God who's never angry is a God who basically is left to smile at injustice. Um, that when evil happens... A God who's never angry says, well, that's okay. You'll do better in the future. And think about this. Not even thinking about biblical times, but think about today when teenage women in our city are manipulated and then abused into selling themselves for money. Do you want a God who says, well, gosh, that's not good, but I'm certainly not going to get angry about it. I mean, when people are murdering children for organs and tissues to sell them and make a profit, do you want a God who doesn't get angry about that? When businesses are taking advantage of their power and their own wealth 
and practically enslaving the poor with wages that they can't live on. Do you want a God who doesn't get angry at that? I mean, think about someone beating up your child or your mom. Do you want a God who just wrings his hands in hopes that somehow things will get better? I mean, I don't think any of us do. We all want a God who is angry sometimes. We want a God who is angry enough to do something about the evil that's in the world. Someone who can do something about slavery, about oppression, about injustice. And the Bible presents that kind of God. The Bible presents a God who is sometimes angry. Okay, Exodus 34 verse 6 says, The Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. We just sang about this. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty. So this is the God that we have, a God who is sometimes angry, not always angry, not never angry. And it's important for us. We're going to look actually at the anger of God today in the Bible. It's not unpredictable and wild. God's anger is not the product of a bad temper. God's anger is his settled, controlled, personal hostility to all that is wrong. Okay, God's anger is his settled, controlled, personal hostility to all that's wrong. And a God who cares about injustice is right to be angry about sin, and he's right to punish it. And so there are four things that I want you to see today as we look at the anger of God. And I'm going to give them to you first, and then we're going to see them show up in the Bible. Okay? And so God's anger shows that he is, one, patient, two, grieved, three, willing to forgive, and four, identifying with the judged. Okay, so these are the four points we're going to see today. And I hope that some of this surprises you. I hope that as we look at this, you're going to go, wow, I did not know that. Wow, I've had a wrong understanding of the scriptures up to this point. Man, I had no idea that the Bible presented God in that way. I hope that's what happens for you today. So we're going to look at, um, really, we're going to look at the Bible, primarily the Old Testament at first, and we'll end with some things in the New. Um, the Bible really only talks about the judgment of God coming and the wrath of God coming in four different times. Some of you are going, well, that's new. I didn't know that. I thought God was always angry on every page of the Old Testament. That's my understanding. The God of the Old Testament's hate and wrath. The God of the New Testament's love. Four times in the Old Testament. Four eras in the Old Testament when God is angry. First, you have the flood. Then you have the exodus with the desert wanderings of Israel following the exodus and then the conquest of the promised land. That's like a, just a, that's a 50 year period of time, right? That happens at once. And then you have when Israel's kings come into power, when Israel has a king, then you see a renewal of, um, of the justice and the anger of God against sin in the land. And then last you have the exile. Okay, you have the exile when Israel is actually kicked out of the land themselves. So we're going to talk about these things. And so if you don't know what those things are, don't worry. 
we're going to go into more of them. But the first thing that I want you to see with these four eras during the time of the Bible is when they happened. Okay? So here are the dates. The flood happened. Again, this is approximate because we don't know actually if the genealogies that are in the Bible are complete. There's good evidence that says they're not complete, but let's just say they are, for instance. And if they're not, then it would have happened longer ago than this. The flood around 2500 B.C., Then the Exodus, the desert and the conquest, the promised land, happened in 1500 B.C., roughly. The kingship, Israel began to have kings in 1000 B.C., and then the exile happened in 700 B.C. What I want you to see here is that God got angry and brought his judgment in 2500 B.C. and then didn't do it again until 1500 So there were a thousand years, there's a thousand year gap between the flood and the exodus, okay? Then between the exodus and the conquest of the land and the kingship, there were 500 years. Then between the kingship and the exile, there were 300 years. So think about the gaps. You got a thousand years, 500 years, 300 years. Is God always angry? He's not. He's not. There was a thousand years. I mean, just take the smallest gap, 300 years. Our nation hasn't even been around for 300 years. And so I want you to see that God is not always angry. And even though there are lots of passages in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, that talk about God's wrath and his judgment, this is the timeline in which they happen. Okay, the reason why God's anger is described in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, the reason it's described in Hosea and Joel and Amos and Jonah and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Hezekiah, and I mean, the reason why all these books of the Bible actually talk about God's justice and his wrath and his anger against sin is because guess what? All those books I just listed off, they're the prophets. They all happen around the time of the exile. And you know what? They're all talking about the same thing. So let me give you just a a way to connect this. Um, I don't know how you heard about the Ferguson shooting that happened in the recent past. Right? The Ferguson shooting happens, right? So I heard about it from someone, and then what did I do? I went online, right? And I Googled Ferguson shooting. How many hits do you think I got? Like 18,000 hits. Okay, and so I began to click, and here, and they're all just different articles about the exact same event, right? Different perspectives from different people in different parts of the country with different opinions, right? But there's 18,000 hits, and so the connection that I'm making here is that that's basically what happened. When the exile came, when God began to move his people, we'll talk about what the exile was, but when that happened, everybody wrote about it. All the prophets wrote about it, and God collected those prophetic writings in the Bible. And so it's not that God is always angry, but that in the case of the exile, there were like 20-some books that were written about the exile. And so that's why it appears that God is always angry. You follow what I'm saying? And so I hope you understand that, I mean, this is, again, this is just more proof. I just want you to know these are the facts 
that are in the Bible. This is that God is not always angry. He is sometimes angry. He is sometimes angry, and it's at these four eras when he gets angry. And so what does God get angry about? Because I think that actually is really the issue. It's not even so much, I think, because when I ask people, I talk to folks, Christians, non-Christians, hey, well, what do you want? Do you want a God who's always angry? No. Do you want a God who's never angry? Yeah, well, then we talk about that, and I go, all right, you're right. It's not that I want a God who's never angry. That's true. I want a God who's sometimes angry. And then the issue becomes, I want a God who's angry at what I'm angry at, (laughs) and a God who isn't angry at what I'm not angry at. And so let's talk about what it was that precipitated God's anger and even the violence that he does in coming in judgment, okay? And so we're going to look at these things one by one. So before the flood, what was it that caused God to send a global flood that destroyed all of life? That's a huge deal, right? It's a big deal. Um, What happened? Well, Genesis 6 actually tells us. It says that... um, um, and I, I, I kind of struggle because we don't have a whole lot of time today. How much to weed into the details? Let me just say this. I'm going to give you an overview of what we're talking about today. After our service, after our family meeting, I'm going to be in the cafe. And if you have any questions about anything that you hear today or you want to go deeper, just come talk to me. I'll answer any questions that you have in the best way that I possibly can after the service. Um, and so, But what was going on, if you read Genesis 6, the kings of the earth at that time had moved so far away from God that they actually had become demon-possessed. So the kings of the earth had given themselves over. They were so power-hungry. They were so far away from God that they had opened themselves up and invited demonic powers to come and to give them even more power and strength. And some of what they did with that power and strength was they began to enslave women and form harems. They took whomever they want, is what the Bible says. And they considered themselves to be the sons of the gods. That's what moved God to say, enough is enough. I need to put a stop to this. With the Exodus, there's really three parties. The Exodus, the desert, and the conquest. But in the Exodus, God rained down his judgment on Egypt. And Egypt was guilty of systemic and century-long slavery. Okay, they had enslaved God's people, and they had gotten to the place where they were so worried about Israel growing as a slave population, so they'd become too powerful, that they began to kill the male children. The Pharaoh of Egypt said, if there is a male Hebrew boy born, kill him at birth. And so... This is sort of, this is the evil from Pharaoh and that characterized Egypt that caused God to come and to say enough is enough. Um, The desert wandering happened to the nation of Israel itself. Like now this is God's people. Before it's sort of God's enemies, but now Israel is God's people and they they were condemned and they were judged to wander the desert. And there was a significant amount of judgment that came on the people of Israel because of their utter betrayal of God. So right after God rescued them from slavery, right after he brought them out of Egypt, stopped being slaves, and they didn't just leave poor, but they left with the wealth of the Egyptians because the Egyptians said, hey, before you go, here's my wallet. Let me give you as much money as I possibly can because I want you to not keep cursing me. And so Israel left incredibly wealthy. And the day that they left, 
they started complaining about bread and water. They started complaining, and they actually said, we want to go back to Egypt. And so they betrayed God. They had, I mean, they also were cheating on him spiritually. Um, And so God sentenced them to judgment. And then with Canaan, when Israel finally went into the promised land, you have to understand that the Canaanites themselves, um, they were guilty of incest, bestiality, and child sacrifice. I mean, that's just the worst of what they did. You can imagine everything else underneath it. And so God said, enough is enough. With the kingship, you've got Israel continuing to destroy the Canaanites. Um, and so you've got incest, bestiality, child sacrifice again. They were also oppressing and enslaving God's people. And God says, I'm not going to stand for that. And then finally in the exile... The exile is judgment on Israel, the people of God, again, because they had betrayed God and his word, and they were guilty of injustice and slavery to the poor. If you've been reading Amos, we just finished Amos in City Bible Reading. It literally, in Amos 1 and 2, you can read about the sins that were being committed by all of the people that were in the promised land at the time. And so this is what moves God to judgment, Okay? God doesn't pour out his wrath from heaven when people cheat at the poker table. Okay? Like that's not what was going on. What was going on was systemic and prolonged evil that was actually destroying his people um, and destroying society. That's what brings God's wrath. And so in the midst of this, I want you to see again these four things. We're going to go back over them. I want you to see first that God is patient. God is patient. So even in his wrath, he's patient. Um, I want you just to see a couple things. When it comes to the flood, the gap, again, was 1,500 years. If the genealogies are complete, which I don't think they are, then creation was in 4,000 B.C. And so there were 1,500 years between creation and the flood. And so God was patient. Okay, God didn't just meet out you know, the uh, ultimate wrath and judgment, but he waited 1,500 years before the flood came. And then, and then when God called Noah to build the ark, it took Noah 120 years. And so the people of the earth knew and could see Noah building and could hear Noah preaching. The New Testament tells us that Noah actually was warning people during that 120-year period of time, telling them what was coming. They chose to ignore it. They chose to, I mean, when, um, despite what, uh, what the Noah movie showed, like there weren't people that were trying to get onto the ark. Um, they, they, they didn't want to have anything to do with Noah. And so people had 120 years to turn back to God. So you want to think about that kind of evil that was going on. My guess is that if you were alive back then, if you were Noah, you would have been saying to God, God, why are you waiting so long? When you look at the details of God's patience, I think you're going to find that God is actually more patient than even the most pacifist of us. So the second, with Exodus, uh, the desert and the conquest. Again, the gap is a thousand years. Um, Thousand years of brokenness, of people uh, with sin, of sin growing, Um, Then even for Egypt, there were 80 years. Uh, Moses was raised up. Then it it was 80 years later that he came. And then Moses repeatedly warned Pharaoh. 
repeatedly warned the people of Egypt um, before the exodus, before the plagues hit. Um, And then um, with Canaan, this is what's interesting. A lot of people say, gosh, it was so awful that God sent Israel into the promised land to kill all those people that were living there. Gosh, what did they ever do wrong? Well, we've talked about already what they've done wrong, what they were doing wrong. But also, um, there's an amazing passage in the Bible in Genesis chapter 17 where God promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, listen, your descendants are going to go into a nation that they don't know. And they're going to be there and they're going to be oppressed for 400 years. And after that time, I'm going to call them out. I'm going to bring them out of that nation to this land where you are now. And I'm going to give them this land. It's going to be theirs for an everlasting possession. And so God's making this promise to Abraham and he's describing this. And I mean, if I'm Abraham, I might be sitting there going, why? (laughs) God, why not do it now, right? I'm here. I've got at least one kid that came from me. Like, let's just do this now. Um, God says at the very end of this promise that he makes, he says, it's going to be 400 years because the sins of the people in the land are not yet complete. What he's saying here is God is saying, listen, I am going to give them time to turn from their ways. I'm going to give them time to change. I'm going to be patient with them. I'm going to wait for 400 years. 400 years. It's actually Genesis 15, verse 16, if you want to look it up. That's where God says he's going to wait 400 years. And so again, God is incredibly patient. The people of Israel go into the promised land and they have ups and they have downs. Um, They didn't do what God asked them to do. Um, And yet God waited another 500 years before they had a king who was then called to then um, reconquer the promised land. And during that time, again, there were countless opportunities. There were countless opportunities for the people in the land um, to stop oppressing God's people. They saw God's people. They knew about their gods. They didn't choose to turn, but God was patient with them. And then prior to the exile, God waited another 300 years before he judged his own people. Again, like 300 years. So this would be, you know what, 1715, right? Before our country was even formed. Like that's how long God has waited. That's how long God waited to bring judgment. And the people of Israel had countless chances, again, to return to God and to be renewed people. God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. One of the reasons why there are so many prophets who talk about the judgment that's coming is because every single one of those prophets told the people, it doesn't have to be this way. Like you're going down a road and you don't have to keep going down that road. There was an opportunity. And so for 300 years more, God was being patient with his people, giving them chance after chance after chance to come back. And so this shows that even in the midst of judgment, even a God who is angry, he is not angry all the time. He is actually incredibly, incredibly patient. He's incredibly patient. And if his patience is measured in centuries, I mean, just to think about what does that mean if we follow this God? Oh, man, can we at least measure our patience in minutes with people? 
can we measure our patience in hours? I mean, how quickly are we, how quickly do we run out of patience with people at work, uh, with our spouses, with the people we're dating, with our kids? How quickly do we run out of patience? That is not a reflection of the God who is willing, who is willing to wait and to wait and to wait. And so God is patient. Um, the second thing I want you to see is that God is grieved. God is grieved over the sins um, that he is going to condemn. In Genesis 6, 6, it says this. This is before the flood. It says, God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's incredible. I mean, when you think about the judgment of God, don't you think God just like, all right, fine, I'm done with you. Smack. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible was, he, he regretted, he had regret. He was grieved in his heart. His heart was broken over the sins that people were committing and over what he was going to have to do about it. In 1 Samuel 15, 11, um, after Israel's first king started out good and then turned bad, this is what God said, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned his back from following me. And then before the exile happened, as Ezekiel is preaching to the people, he's telling the people, look, stop, stop what you're doing. Don't you realize this is God? God is calling you back. This is how God feels. And this is Ezekiel quoting God saying, this is God talking, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And so even in the midst of his anger, when God's patience does come to an end, and it does, even then, God administers his anger, his punishment, with a heart that is grieving over the death of the wicked. And when you see God that way, it will change the way you react to people even when you are justly angry. It'll break your heart because of what's being done to them, that the relationship needs to be broken, that their privileges need to be restricted, that you're not going to give them access to your friendship in the same way that you did before. That should grieve your heart. Not to take delight in the death or the destruction of a relationship, not to take any delight in the fact that someone has done something that's causing you to be so angry with them that you have to cut off ties with them. No delight in that. But the, our heart's desire is that even as we're angry, that they would turn. And so God is grieved. And then third, and again quickly, God is willing to forgive. We see this over and over and over again. In Genesis 6, right after it says that God was grieved, he was sorry that he made man, it grieved him in his heart, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God gave Noah his favor. Um, God was willing that Noah would share for 120 years, giving people opportunities to turn and to repent. In the conquest of the promised land, it says in Joshua 6.25, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's house, Joshua saved alive. So Joshua was the leader of the army of Israel going in to destroy all the people. Joshua preserved Rahab the prostitute and her father's whole house. They were saved and she has lived in Israel to this day. 
Why? Because when the message came that God was angry and was going to bring the people of the land to judgment, she believed and she turned. She said, I am sorry. I am turning from my ways and I'm going to follow you, God. And so she was saved in her whole father's house. And then Ezekiel 33, right after it says um, that you would turn and live, I have no delight in the death of the wicked. It says, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? When you read the prophets and you see how they're calling on uh, people that God's going to come and judge them, when they do that, in every single book, over and over and over again, it says, but it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. If you turn back to God, if you believe in him, if you confess what you've done wrong, God will forgive And so again, even in the midst of his anger, God is willing to forgive if we are willing to turn. And then the last thing I want you to see is that God identifies with the judged. Okay, this blew me away. As we've been reading City Bible Reading in the last few months, um, I want to just show you a couple of places. Um, And they're too big to fit in in those little boxes. So Hosea 1, 2, the Lord said to Hosea, Hosea is the prophet, Okay, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So God goes to this prophet Hosea and says, listen, I got a message for you. It's a message of judgment. Hosea is like, sweet, let's do this. These people are evil. They're rotten. Let's go get them. God says, hold on, Hosea. Verse two, this is verse two. God says, listen, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And I want you to know that you're going to marry her and she's going to cheat on you. She's actually going to have children from another man after you marry her. And I want you to do this. Why? Because that's what Israel, that's what the people have done to me. What do we see here? We see that God says to Hosea, look, if you want to pronounce my judgment then you are going to have to identify with the judged. If you want to pronounce God's judgment, then you have to identify with those that God will judge. One more example. We'll talk about this again. This is a little bit longer, and it's kind of funky, but it just illustrates the point. I want you to imagine this. This is God to Ezekiel. He says, lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long you shall bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you've completed these, yes, I'm done. That's so awesome. Then you shall lie down a second time, but now on your right side. Okay, Lord. And bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. So God is saying, look, I've got a problem with my people. And I want to send you out to judge them. But guess what? If you want to pronounce my message of judgment, you have to identify with the judgment that you're pronouncing. I don't want my nation filled with people who are pronouncing judgment and are untouched by it. I don't want people in my nation, I don't want people anywhere near any of my people who are 
telling other people they're going to hell and aren't willing to identify with them. Are you with me? What I want, I want prophets, I want people, I want Christians today, I want men and women whose hearts are grieved over the sin that will be judged. I want men and women who are willing to forgive other people. I want men and women who are willing to identify with the pain, who are willing to identify with the brokenness, who are willing to accept people exactly as they are and love them as they are. Those are the people that can speak for me a word of judgment. And so we do this today by caring about people who deserve to be judged, by caring about them, by learning their stories, by understanding what it is that makes them do what they do, by being willing to forgive, by not taking delight in their demise or their destruction. God had the prophets do this. God asks us to do this because God himself did this. Hosea, Ezekiel, they're just pictures They're just earthly pictures of what God would come himself and do. I mean, Jesus, in Luke 19, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He was grieved at their destruction that was coming. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him Jesus. So for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God. God sent Jesus and treated him as though he were guilty of all of our sins. When Jesus came, he identified with sinners. He ate with tax collectors and and prostitutes. He spent time with people. He welcomed them. He loved them. He cared for them. And then he died for them. He identified with your sin and mine. The judgment that we deserve, he took on the cross. He identified so closely with our sin that he suffered for it. God says, as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. So God identifies with the judged so much so that he left heaven to identify so closely so that we might in him find a way out. Again, I know there's lots of questions. I'll be in the cafe afterwards um, to answer those questions. Um, But if if you're a Christian here today, I hope that you see more of the heart of God, even in the midst of his anger. It's so easy for us to get angry about all kinds of things. Continue to stare at the character, and not just the character, but the actions of our God revealed in Jesus. Because as you do that, you will become like this. You'll become able to forgive. You'll become patient. You'll become grieved. And you'll be moved to identify with the judged. And for those of you here who aren't Christians, I hope that you can see that this is a God who, man, he's worth knowing. He really does care. 
He doesn't fly off the handle, but he is committed to fixing what's wrong with the world, even if that means taking people out of the world who refuse to participate with him. Don't refuse, but join him. When you put your faith in Jesus, he'll actually draw near to you. You become part of his family. You actually can become part of his group of people on earth who are working to bring renewal to people, to cities, to nations, ultimately to the whole world. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that every time we come to the scriptures and we look at it for what it really says, it's so different than what we've heard. Thank you for not being always angry. But we thank you too for being sometimes angry. We thank you for being committed to fixing what's wrong with the world. And Lord, I don't understand in the mystery of your sovereignty um, how you bring renewal and also let us leave us up to free will. I know that so much of what's wrong in the world is our fault, not yours. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see that in your anger you are patient. In your anger you are grieved. In your anger you are willing to forgive and you identify with the judged. Work those traits in us and let us this week be reshaped and renewed so that the things that make us angry would also drive us to become patient and grieved, willing to forgive and willing to identify. Help us walk in that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.